0: is the Punch Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back with you here on The Punch Out 4-7-2021. Very happy to be with you here halfway through the week. Got a great show for you, as we always do. We're going to be talking about what's going on with vaccinations behind the bars in the United States. We're going to be talking about just absurd economic outlooks coming from JP Morgan and other big capitalist boosters. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we're going to be talking about the intersection of oil, water, wars, the United States, and Nigeria and here's the other thing because i also you know i'm in a lot of meetings on foreign policy you know for years and generations wars have been fought over oil in a short matter of time they will be fought over water well that was vice president kamala harris you heard there recognizing that well wars for oil are a real thing Certainly, the U.S. has done many of them, and also talking about some potential future where wars will be over water. Well, I agree with her to some extent, but those wars over water are happening now. And of course, many wars are still being fought over oil. And the U.S. has their hands in both, and in a pretty bloody way. Something that is clearly reflected by current turmoil in southeastern Nigeria, catching the eye of world news, which combines pretty much all these factors. A massive manhunt is on in Nigeria for 1,800 prisoners freed recently and a brazen breakout from a prison in Imo State in southeastern Nigeria. The bold raid that involved coordinated attacks with machine guns and RPGs has turned the focus of the world on Nigeria to the extent it was there from the northern part of the country to the southern part of the country. And it comes actually after... A range of police stations and checkpoints were attacked just a couple weeks ago, and also in the southeastern region, killing a dozen security personnel from the government. And what's happening in southeastern Nigeria isn't all that different, at least in the broad strokes, from what's happening in northeastern Nigeria. On the one hand, you have tremendous wealth being produced. Southeastern region contains the Niger Delta, one of the world's richest oil centers. There's major palm oil production there. There's bauxite. There's very rich soils as well. This, of course, exists a long time alongside, I should say, intense poverty as high as 60%. Most of the wealth, of course, is siphoned off into the coffers of companies like Exxon and Shell. What wealth does make it to Nigerians is primarily hoarded by wealthy elites, and you combine that with a state controlled by those elites that doesn't focus much on, well, state building, and it creates a combustible situation where various political groups, warlords, gangs, groups of organized people basically emerge to fill various power vacuums with Various goals of their own. And there are also, of course, legacy issues stemming from the end of colonialism. In southeastern Nigeria, there's long been separatist movements. There was also a brutal war, by the way, uh, in the early 1960s, uh, that have felt that they should be a separate country, of course. And so, in addition to just the general issue of marginalization, you have the specific feelings in the current situation. Many feeling that it's basically a continuation of the long held subordination of Southeastern Nigeria more broadly in both the colonial setup and then in the post colonial setup in their view. And that's where the current situation of the prison break takes an interesting turn and where the conflict and its clear ties to mineral wealth also start to involve water. So the Nigerian government has blamed the prison break on the indigenous people of Biafra, IBOP, and its Eastern security network. They, however, have denied any involvement at all. IPOB argues that there should be a separate country in much of this region, but its ESN wing is mainly designed to fight with Fulani herdsmen. Desertification has made water and grass much scarcer in the traditional grazing lands in the northern part of the country for these herdsmen, which means they've been pushed further and further into the central and now southern parts of the country looking for access to water and grass. That leads to land conflicts with farmers who need the water specifically for their own lands. Some say the conflicts between herders and farmers have been six times as deadly as the Boko Haram conflict. Gives you a sense of the scale there. So all in all, IPOB is, you know, a major target for the government and an easy scapegoat for them, right? They don't like them because their secessionist views wanting to take away one of the wealthiest regions that elites are making a lot of money off of in other parts of Nigeria. And it certainly helps the government shift the focus onto terrorism and away from the deeper issues behind conflicts involving the ESN and all the broader conflicts that are happening in the region. And with these groups declining to take credit, though, it raises a lot of questions of who is really involved and who did do this prison break. And it had to be somebody serious, given the heavy arms that were involved in it as well. And it's worth noting that this is coming at the same time the government has started to curtail its payments to former militants in the Niger Delta region. That in the earlier part of this century, really the first decade of the 2000s, had really brought the oil economy to its knees or just about to its knees. And we've seen an overall rise in armed conflict in the Delta over the past several years, in fact. So it seems that the government may also be blaming IPOB to deflect from the fact that its own security strategy is starting to fail and the broader region itself is starting to destabilize um, in the wake of the fruits of. Government policy. The U.S., of course, is deeply implicated here. They give political support and hundreds of millions of dollars a year, plus military training to this and a succession of Nigerian governments whose own governing style, as we've been pointing out, is the root of many of these problems. So much of the security assistance doesn't, uh, or other assistance, doesn't do anything to solve the problem. It just gets funneled into the military and specialized police forces that have become renowned for their own human rights abuses and become drivers of the conflict in and of themselves, in addition to the uh, established realities that as we've already mentioned have set the stage for the conflict. So in Nigeria not only are oil and water sparking conflict in a big way, you've got the US right there stoking the fire. <laughs> Since the Bureau of Labor Statistics released its March jobs numbers last week, just over 900,000 new jobs, by the way, there's been quite a bit of economic boosterism, signaling a major boom, allegedly, just around the corner. The IMF triumphantly announced that the world will return to growth rates this year that it hasn't seen since the 1970s. And this morning, the whole U.S. business press was trumpeting the words of J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon everywhere, words from his annual investor note saying, quote, I have little doubt the U.S. economy will likely boom. This boom could easily run into 2023, end quote. That's the message from big business. It's all going to be fine. It's all coming back and fast. Seems appropriate we note here then that this view just seems totally bizarre in the face of quite a bit of evidence While the job growth in March is certainly better than some time, we're still at 11 million jobs fewer than last February before the pandemic. 5.8 million workers experienced a drop in hours or pay because of the pandemic last month. 4.2 million people out of work for six months or more. I mean, there were 3,600 eviction filings just last week, just among a few things that make it quite clear the economy's in pretty rough shape. Although for the Jamie Diamonds of the world, things are probably looking pretty great because the stock market is booming, which doesn't mean much to you and me, of course, since the richest 10% of households control 84% of the total value of all stocks. For our purposes here, we also want to highlight something else. Diamond doesn't really have much of a stake in this, either way. If he's right, of course, he will make money. But if he's wrong and the economy crashes into any of the major obstacles it clearly faces, he's almost guaranteed to get bailed out. So at the end of the day, no skin off his back. And the biggest red flag out there, a big obstacle or something that makes one think that this is all too optimistic is debt, basically. The government policy of making borrowing cheap and plentiful in what's known as quantitative easing, more or less, has led to a huge invest- uh, a huge boom of people borrowing money. Investors, for instance, borrowed 49% more money in February 21, as opposed to February 2020, to buy stocks. 49% more this year, as opposed to last year, to buy stocks. The Wall Street Journal notes that this is, quote, the fastest annual increase since 2007, during the frothy period before the 2008 financial crisis. Before that, the last time investor borrowings had grown so rapidly was during the dot-com bubble in 1999, end quote. That also crashed, by the way. By November of last year, zombie companies, companies who don't make enough money to cover the interest on their debts, racked up $2 trillion in debt, and that included many big names like Boeing and Delta. Now, many of these companies rack up the debt because investors think they're going to make it through uh, this crisis, much of it related to COVID, but clearly the opportunity for all sorts of bad bets on who's going to make it or not make it going wrong is very, very real. And we already know that all sorts of problems with all sorts of debts and things that are happening on Wall Street are happening. For instance, one of the main loan markets, the repo market, needed $11 trillion in cash in less than a year, in fact, from late 2019 to the fall of 2020, $11 trillion just to stay afloat. So that's problems that started before the pandemic. I mean, you had to ask yourself, one of the major loan markets needed $11 trillion in less than a year. Are things really looking great and like there aren't big problems? Just ask yourself that. We also just saw a major hedge fund collapse due to bad bets with something known as more or less over-the-counter derivatives, which brings us back to JP Morgan. Now, a lot of people noted the sudden collapse of uh, Arctagos, I think is how you say it, which is a $10 billion hedge fund uh, just about a week ago, it woke a lot of people up to how easily a lot of these bad bets can have big ripple effects all across the market. Credit Suisse, a huge bank, facing huge implications from the collapse of this hedge fund. And basically, this hedge fund collapsed because they were robbing Peter to pay Paul to cover their various bad bets. Part of the issue is that since that, part of the issue is that since what they were doing was known as over the counter arrangements between the creditor and the debtor, the, debt, the creditor and the debtor. So, more or less, they come to you, they say, let's do this trade. You do the trade, you work out the trade just between the two of you. So, unscrupulous actors in a lot of these sorts of arrangements don't necessarily say, Uh, all the information they should so you know if it's a good or a bad bet. And this hedge fund in particular was just lying to people about a lot of elements of their investments that made the bets super risky. Of course, they were in fact super risky and they all failed. So you just think about that, showed how easy it all was for the whole thing, whole house of cars to collapse. $10 billion hedge fund. JP Morgan has much more than $10 billion. They have $2.65 trillion in similar types of investments, equity derivatives. 72% of those 72% 72% of that $2.6 trillion are over-the-counter transactions. So similar to what we were just saying and what we just saw with that hedge fund, there could be all sorts of landmines in these transactions. But this is all federally insured because it's J.P. Morgan. So if it was to fail due to any or all of these bets, you and I, the taxpayer, would be on the hook for a huge bailout. This is what it means when people say it's, you're too big to fail. J.P. Morgan, of course, has faced five felonies in the past seven years linked to a giant appetite for risk and fraud, doing things like working with Bernie Madoff. They, in fact, have shelled out $37 billion in fines since 2008 for various allegations of fraud and market rigging. So just even more evidence that there are all sorts of potentially bad bets out there on Wall Street that could go bad and bring down the whole system relatively easily. And I, of course, could be totally wrong. The corporate debt thing could mean nothing at all. Jamie Dimon could be right. But it seems to me that what's really happening right now is that there is a wild casino running on a bunch of borrowed money, just hoping to avoid any major disruptions, and that the people making the most money are going out of their way to cover up for the fact that they seem to be driving the economy really fast, directly over a cliff. (laughs) You may not be surprised to hear that, well, no state in the country has prioritized prisoners in the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine. But the fact they did not do so does stand out in particular relief when you note that the CDC and almost all public health officials have stated that incarcerated people should be vaccinated early on, prioritized similar levels of priority as essential workers, given the fact that prisons have a high propensity to become super spreader sites. A good example of that is about 3 in 10 prisoners in the United States have tested positive for COVID-19. 2,500 at least have died. Prisons tend to be overcrowded, of course Anyway, they were also notable for lacking PPE They have poor medical care, generally And honestly, the threat of the use of solitary confinement As a form of retaliation Under cover of COVID isolation Played a big role as well In the rapid spread in prisons That is, you report your symptoms That can be used against you by prison staff Rather than, say, being released from prison Or isolated in a medical setting They'll send you to solitary allegedly for your health But really to punish you for something else So far, the rollout of vaccines for those behind bars has, of course, been very uneven. By the end of March, by the way, Arkansas and Florida have not vaccinated any prisoners. It's according to the Marshall Project and the Associated Press, which have been collecting the information. Oregon claims to have at least offered the vaccine to every incarcerated person, but that was only after a group of prisoners had to sue for access. In Georgia, one and a half percent of prisoners have received at least one shot of the vaccine, while 26% of the general population of the state is in the same boat. In Maine, 7% of prisoners are vaccinated. 23% of the people in the state are fully vaccinated. Overall, fewer than 20% of prisoners have been vaccinated as compared to something like 33% of the overall population having received one shot. Prisons are also running into a big issue here, which is that medical care is so poor in many prisons that many prisoners are skeptical of the vaccine. And most correctional facilities aren't doing really anything at all uh, to address this issue because, of course, they're not going to address that their own medical care is terrible and that people are skeptical because of all of the wrongs that have been done to them when other medical issues. But the most... The, you know Some of them are just demanding that people do it uh, and refusing to address their actual concerns. Some of them are also insultingly doing things like offering people bags of cookies. They're doing that in Mississippi to entice them rather than address their actual real public health concerns. All of it really just goes to show that when it comes to basic human rights, public health, and just basic human decency, U.S. prisons continue to fail on pretty much all counts. And that's going to do it for us here today on The Punch-Out. And we also just want to note that, of course, we have the special patrons only edition of the punch out that is also dropping here today we're going to be talking about the iran deal uh the so-called summit around the iran deal that's happening in vienna this week we're going to be going to a number of issues surrounding that so for patrons only but if you want this patrons only weekly episode of the punch out you got to go to patreon.com slash breakthrough news and become a patron and definitely please become a patron check that out we will be back with you tomorrow on the punch out 5 p.m eastern standard time here on breakthrough news